Today, we speak to Sean Paul, along with Jason Jensen, to get first-hand knowledge of where the case is at the moment, if any suspects have been identified, and what the public can do to help. This interview will conclude our season. We will be releasing it in two parts over the next couple of weeks because we spent hours talking to Sean Paul. He opened up his heart and shared so much, and we want to share the entirety of that conversation with you. While these episodes will bring our season to a close, as new information develops in Kylan and Crystal's case, we will be sure to cover it and update all of you. Hearing Sean Paul's trembling voice and seeing the immense pain in his eyes was extremely difficult. He is trying his best to turn his pain into power, not only for his remaining children, but also to focus his energy into finding the monster who killed his daughters. He shared beautiful memories of his children with us, not only of Kylan, but Mackie, whose life was lost due to senseless gun violence at a very young age, back in 2015. And he spoke of something that we could hardly believe, the agonizing reason he couldn't attend Kylan's funeral. I was too afraid that in the state that I was in that if I saw someone that hurt Kylan back then, even though it was a funeral, I might run and tackle the guy or try to choke him out or kill him or something. The girls had said that he came back. Okay, now what I picture is I picture there was a creepy guy camping too close to the girl. And I mean too close, like they could see he had food and clothing. He was too close to them. You're listening to Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Tell us about Kylan. What was she like? And we've heard so many people say, be Kylan kind. Tell us about how that saying came to be. Well, definitely one of the neat little kind of sayings that came out of this, you know, the sunflower and a rose for the two girls. And then this be crystal clear, be Kylan kind with the K-Y-N-D. I don't remember who posted it first, one of my cousins or somebody, but what they're trying to say is that Kylan was a super sweet, uh, outgoing, friendly, always smiling. You know, if a customer came in the the co-op, she was the kind of girl who would remember their um, their uh, co-op number. You know, she'd punch it right in and have their all their co-op numbers memorized. And she might even say, you know, how's your husband John doing, or how's your puppy dog doing? I mean, she would. You know, she she was open and perceptive and paid attention to people. She wasn't just a fake it till you make it kind of smiling face up at the till. She was the real deal. She was uh, super kind and sweet and and listened and paid attention and and everybody that came in there, you know, wanted some of her butterflies to kind of rub off on them and uh, or 
wanted a hug or just wanted a smile, you know, because it was smiling Kylan. And uh, so she's just super open and super sweet. Um, she w wasn't like a, a prejudiced or the antagonist. She was never the neg you know, negative person. Unless someone <laughs> crossed her and Crystal the wrong way, they, then maybe they might speak their mind, you know. But uh, Kylan, just a super, super sweet, sweet girl, you know, from from when she was born all the way till she was 24 years old. She just lit up the room with those beautiful green eyes and uh, she always had a smirky, goofy attitude. She was just really just the sweetest kid, you know. Well, sometimes she was mean to her little brother. Sometimes she was really mean to her little stepsister. You know, some sibling things where they'd bump heads and she would just be the toughest. So she got her way. But out in the world with the the customers and the people and, and in society and throughout Moab. She was just a delight. She was just a nice, she was a nice ray of sunshine and, and Crystal complimented that. Kylan kind of filled some of the gaps, you know, those girls kind of, they, they really, you know, Kylan was strong and Crystal was strong, but together, I mean, they were like really, they'd be stronger than two people when you added them together they'd be more like the, they got the vote of three people don't ask me how but they were that strong of a of a and they didn't try that's the other interesting thing is that kylan was not putting on a show for anyone kylan could have been a model she could have been a a supermodel uh but she wouldn't she wasn't like that you know, she didn't put on a show for anybody. She uh, put on a, that love shine for Crystal. And, uh, and and Crystal, same, you know. Crystal really looked up to Kylan and, and really grew and really blossomed. She kind of pulled herself out of the funk and the shadows and the negativity from her past and really just blossomed um, into a super clean, fun. Uh, she was super respectful, Crystal, that is. But, you know, Kylan uh, was super kind and uh, Crystal didn't mince words. So when I say, let's be crystal clear, I mean like Crystal was very crystal clear. She told you what she meant. There was no beating around the bush. There was no back or different meanings or whatever. And Kylan was always put her kindness forward in her personality and her characteristics were made other people feel good to, to look up and see this tall, beautiful girl with dreadlocks flying all over the place and these big, beautiful eyes. And, and she wasn't pretentious, she was sweet. So people just, really loved Kylan and and people really loved and respected Crystal and uh, yeah yeah they were they, they're just super sweet bright shining lights in Moab 
where uh, if you asked a local person in Moab, you know, what'd you ever think of these girls? They would just go into some crazy story about something these girls did that just lit up their day. An interesting, honest thing that, that I experienced with Kylan that might be the highlight of what I remember about my baby girl. There was a time when Kylan's mom and I used to argue because I thought the kids, we should be sober and, and be good examples. And she, you know, just in a nutshell, she told me I was an alcoholic the day you met me and I'll be an alcoholic the day I die. So I kind of realized that I had to kind of make tough choices and, and figure out what I was going to do. And so we, we separated and we used to fight like a cat and a dog all the time. Well, one time I was in the kids' mom's driveway, okay? And Mackie boy was right here to my right. And Kylan was right in front of my body. Their mom was over on the porch because she wouldn't come out and I wouldn't go in. You know, it was one of those deals where a drop-off or a pickup was on the front porch and, and, and we didn't communicate with each other. We just made the drop-off and I left or pick up and I left. But not on this one. I made the mistake of getting out of my car and I was talking to Mackie Boy who was to my right. And I was explaining to Mackie Boy that no, this isn't right. That you're not supposed to choose drugs and alcohol over your family. This is not right. And Kylan got right in my face, I mean, right up to my nose. And she puffed up her chest and she said, what the hell are you telling Mackie? And I said, I'm telling him that I don't want him to turn out like his goddamn mom. And you guys, I've never been hit so hard in my life. It was a left hook. Kylan was left-handed and she came with a left hook and she blasted me in the face and it knocked the sense into me. I've never been the same. I've never said anything negative about their mom ever again because Kylan knocked the shit out of me and it, and it really hit home with me. And I mean, at first my reaction was, oh, that's great, Kylan. Now you're gonna go to jail for assault. But then I thought, God, I'm an asshole. And God, I can't believe I said that in front of Kylan and Mac about their mom. And so one of the most memorable things I have is seeing a 16-year-old little girl stand up to, I'm 6'1 and I'm 240 pounds at the time. And she stood up to her dad, you know, the, of all the people in the world that, I mean, God, I never stood up to my dad. Are you insane? That would be crazy talk, right? Kylan stood up to her dad uh, to stick up for her mom and her little brother. And I, I just got to tell you that, that she had a, an insane inner strength. And I was really super proud of her the day that she stood up to me. Sean Paul also shared the story of the first time Kylan ever saw Crystal. He was hiking with his daughter in Faux Falls when two women walked by them and one was holding a cat. Both Sean Paul and Kylan noticed the oddity of seeing someone hiking with their pet cat, and they also heard a snippet of the conversation and noticed the woman's southern accent. They didn't talk to her, 
they'd never met her, but they sure did notice her. And as Sean Paul put it, two months later, Kylan said, Daddy, guess who I met at work? We are breakfast cooks together. The girl with the hiking cat. I was like, no way, the one with the southern drawl? Yep, her name is Crystal. The rest is history. We asked Sean Paul if he had spoken to Kylan or Crystal in the days leading up to their murder. We wondered if he had spoken to them while the creepy guy had been bothering them. I talked to the girls often. Um, I probably spoke to the girls on the 6th and then maybe again on the 9th or something like that. You know, every two or three days I'd call the girls and uh, we'd chit-chat about what was new in Moab because I had just left Moab and COVID was going on. And I mean, gosh, we'd spent a year on unemployment and all this crazy stuff. And so I'm like, girls, what's new? What shops have closed? Have any new shops opened? Have you guys gotten busy at work again? Did McDonald's open the lobby or are you still just doing drive-through stuff? You know, we talked all the time about all kinds of stuff all the time. But uh, not since or during or after this time when they came down and told their friends that there was a creeper. You know, I sent a message maybe on the 12th and didn't get a response and didn't really worry about it because I knew the girls didn't have cell phone coverage like I have. They, they only had cell phone when they were on Wi-Fi. So when they were in town at either one of their jobs or whatever, they could make calls and we talked all the time. Usually, Kylan was waiting for Crystal to get it off work, so I'd talk to Kylan. Or Crystal was waiting for Kylan to get off work, so I'd talk to Crystal. And we'd just chit-chat while they were in Wi-Fi. So right before this happened, uh, I had my normal chit-chats with the girls. We'd send each other little love notes and hearts and pictures of sunsets and canyons and all that kind of stuff. But no, I had no communication with them about the creeper or being wigged out because, you know, there's, I just, I wouldn't have let them go back up there. girls had said that he came back okay now what I picture is I picture there was a creepy guy camping too close to the girl and I mean too close like they could see he had food and clothing he was too close to them in dispersed camping there's an unwritten rule where you know you don't have to camp on top of each other when you're in dispersed camping give each other space so that if someone has a campfire and singing campfire songs it's not keeping you up all night there's a space there's just a general so the creeper was was camped too close okay then uh in order for him to come back with food and clothing he must have left and in the scenario i kind of picture course we don't know for sure uh but the scenario i kind of picture is he creeped them out they told their friends there's a creep up there and they said well don't go back up there and they said oh hell no there's two of us and one of him we'll be fine they went back up there and he had left okay so i think he had left 
and so they didn't move their camp. So then they were getting ready maybe to go down to Moab for Friday afternoon fun, goof off with their friends, eat with their friends, have a couple drinks. And uh, right before they left, he came back. But I don't think they packed up and left at that time. They were just like, ah, screw it. And they went to town. So what that tells us is that he may have been set up there a day or a day and a half or, or or he may have even been set up two days earlier and left for a whole day and then came back you know we don't know for sure what the girls meant when they said he left and then he came back but it definitely prompted me to think that whoa wait a minute we need to expand our our search criteria for satellite image cell phone dump anyone spotting dash cam things to include the 10th or 11th why not i mean what if what if he was there earlier than we thought when did you first learn that the girls were concerned about a creepy guy at their campsite i believe cindy sue she, you know sean paul i'm going up the mountain no matter what tomorrow i don't care if my back hurts or my feet hurts or if the doggies are going bonkers i don't care i'm going up the mountain tomorrow and it really was like as if her mom was telling her from heaven, Cindy Sue, go up the mountain. And so she went up the mountain to go look. And then I believe that I might have talked to her two times. Any luck? Anything? Go no, nothing. I, I showed her picture to their pictures to a bunch of people up Pack Creek and up Uwal and nothing. And then... uh I was probably on Facebook and I saw where one of them had said, like, if we don't come to work tomorrow, we were murdered. I was like, I mean, even in jesting, even in a joke, I'm like, whoa, this is not good. So right away, my mind's going bonkers about them get a bad guy, them getting murdered. I'm like, what's going on here? So I called Cindy Sue and I was like, Cindy Sue, any luck? She's like, no, you know, I'm going up Warner Lake. I'm going to talk to everybody I see. And and uh, and I said, well, I just got an interesting thing that said that the girl said there was a creeper. There was a weirdo. And the girl said, um, if, if we don't come to work tomorrow, we were murdered. And Cindy was like, oh, my God, what the? So now she <laughs> We're both freaking out on the phone together. Mm -hmm. We don't even know what's about to happen. And all of a sudden, Cindy Sue says, oh, my God, I see a flash of silver out of the corner of my eye. And I was like, really? And she said, yeah, and, and I'm going to pull in there. And she pulled in, and then she pulled in a little bit further. And she said, oh, my God, I see the girl's car. And I was like, no way. How? How do you, are, you, are you serious? And she was like, yeah. And then she got out of her vehicle and she took a couple steps and, and she said, uh, I see the bunny rabbit in the cage. And so I was like, oh my God, she is at the girl's camp. And she took two more steps and then she told me that she saw Kylan in the I don't, I don't think she said Kylan. I think she said a body. And then I, I think I might have asked her to look again and see if it was. And, and she said, it's Kylan, it's Kylan. And all of a sudden I said, Cindy, Sue, you need to get the hell out of there. You need to, 
run, get in your car, lock the door and get the hell out of there. What if the bad guy's still there? And so she said, oh shit, you're right. And she got in her car and drove back to the pavement. So you could see the road from the campsite. So she just drove back up to the loop road. So when the police came, they'd find her immediately on that loop road and then she could tell them where to look. And uh, and I said, hang up and call the police and then call me back. Of course, I'm on the, my girlfriend and I are on speakerphone and we're right there with her as she walks up on Kylan. And now we're on the floor and I'm banging on the floor and we're crying and we're screaming. God, I'm worried the neighbor's gonna call the cops on us because we're crying and we're screaming like, holy, this is, and then I, Honestly, Gia, I don't know what happened. I know that 11 days later, we got the girls' bodies so we could have the funerals. But I don't know what happened during those 10 days. I think I just cocooned on the couch or in bed or something. And family members must have came and saw me. I don't know what happened. I didn't want to go to the funeral because I was too scared to go to Billings because I was too scared to see the person that had abused Kylan when she was 15, 16. And I was too afraid that in the state that I was in that if I saw someone that hurt Kylan back then, even though it was a funeral, I might run and tackle the guy or try to choke him out or kill him or something. So I, so I couldn't even go to the funeral. I was too afraid to see people that, uh, someone that hurt Kylan in the past and I didn't want to. So I held back and I stayed at the hotel till after the funeral was done and everybody left. And then I quick ran to the uh, Memorial Park cause we were having Kylan buried next to her little brother Mackie and next to baby Blake. Um, Kylan's baby that she had lost uh, earlier and uh, and I made it just barely in the nick of time oh my god there was a there was a rose and a sunflower laying there on the ground and I picked them up and I entwined them together and I I, I laid it on the coffin and then they lowered it I mean it was boom boom I, it just all happened so fast and such a crazy blur and and I had friends there with me that drove me, that stayed with me and drove me and then drove me back and whatnot. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I was pretty mad at God and pretty mad that, you know, I felt like I was being picked on. <laughs> Cause, uh, geez, you know, I lost a little baby when I was a kid and, and we lost Kylan's little brother, Mackie boy, and then Kylan lost baby Blake, and now Kylan and Crystal, and I'm just like, God, if I didn't have Marlo and Xander and, and Willie boy to live for, I would just probably just check out, just be gone, you know? I mean, why wouldn't I? It was too much to handle, but once again, I had to try to um, have my dignity for the family and uh, carry myself in a certain way to uh, lead an example for 
my other children of, uh, you know, how not to give up and what we're going to do and how we're going to push forward and how we're going to now go look for answers. Because I didn't know, but immediately after the funeral, I said, I got to go to Moab. Like, what do you mean? She's, <laughs> she's not in Moab. And I'm like, I have to go to Moab now. Okay, go. And, and like the day after the funeral, I left for Moab. And the only thing I could think of to do was set up my clue booth in Swanee Park where the girls and I would go every other day. Just sit at that same picnic table and put up my clue booth and ask people for clues. And I did that for quite a long stretch by myself, turning in clues to law enforcement. And then all of a sudden, like a superhero, Jason calls and says, hey, uh, you want some help with this case? And I said, I don't know who you are or what you're talking about, but what are you talking about? And he says, I'm a private investigator and I, I saw your sister and I saw the case and I, I want to help you pro bono for, for free, help you. And I'm like, ah, well, I don't want some nut job helping me and I don't know what's going on here and what to do. And, and Bridgie says, <laughs> and Bridgie says, here, watch this. And here he comes up on court TV. And I listened to how articulate and how much he thought out of the box. And I watched another program and I thought, hey, you know, he's got quite a bit of experience and stuff. And then I talked to my lawyer friend in Montana. And he said, Sean Paul, what you need is someone in Utah. That's what you need. Someone in New York can't help you. I can't help you in Montana. You, you need someone in Utah. And that was when I said, oh, okay, here's my sign. This is my guy. And, and then all of a sudden, instead of me being by myself in the park, getting freaked out by every heart attack of every clue, <laughs> just like Jason reminded me yesterday, someone left a nine millimeter bullet casing on my picnic table. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I, 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 I don't know what to do. I can't figure out how to handle all these clues and what to do. And all of a sudden there's Jason and he's thinking out of the box and he's really super focused. And, and, and so I'm like, is it okay if I give you all of my clues, all of my clues, I mean everything. And then I can go back to being with my family. And he says, absolutely. And so I just, <laughs> really felt like I could leave then and I could didn't have to be in Moab anymore and so uh, JJ took over with the technical stuff and, and I agreed to handle the family and emotional stuff and uh, so here we are so now when it comes to asking us questions about Brian and Gabby and John Freeman Holt Colt and all these guys I can stop I can lower my anxiety my heart rate I can let Jason do this stuff and so that's what I want to do right now I just want to take a break talk to JJ for a minute and 
let me go refill my coffee. Okay? Absolutely. John Paul shared an eerie incident that took place while he had his clue booth set up in Moab. He was there every single day, as we know, and he sat at the same exact picnic table day after day, collecting all the evidence he could, talking to locals and reporting his findings to law enforcement. But one day, he arrived at his table to find a bullet casing left there. He knows for a fact it wasn't there the day before, so what was it doing there now? And who put it there? Okay, so here's what happened. I probably was at my clue booth for two weeks at the time. So let's say halfway through the month that I was there. I was there every day, rain or shine, every single morning. I, I couldn't take, I tried to take a day off and I couldn't. I would just end up back at my picnic table, okay? One time someone was sitting at my picnic table. I was so rude, I asked them if they would move because I was so used to having that same table that I really felt out of place at the one right next to it. But that's just how it worked. So so I show up to my table, I'm setting up my pictures, I'm setting up Kylan's rocks, I got my little recipe card so I could write down clues and stuff. And uh, on the curb, not on the picnic table, but down on the curb, like where I'd park, saw brass colored shell casing. So I picked it up and I put my glasses on and I looked at it and then said nine millimeter. And I, I think I might have messaged the sheriff and said, you know, does nine millimeter mean anything? I don't even think at the time. Well, no, I think I did know because they found the nine millimeter casings up there. So I did know it was a nine millimeter, but these also weren't silvered. This was a, the ones they found up there were, were like a chrome or a silver color. And the one at my clue booth was bronze. And then I goofed up big time. I set it on the picnic table and I went to the bathroom, which is like a hundred yards away. I mean, you have to walk all the way across this big grass lawn at the park <laughs> and so I walk all the way over to the bathroom and I get over and then I walk all the way back and as I'm coming back across the yard here's the city worker with a leaf blower just blowing the hell out of everything and the bullet was gone I mean I'm on the ground looking for it. I'm, I can't find it. I, I, my friend was sitting there having coffee with me. I was like, for crying out loud, help me look for this thing. We looked all over on the ground, couldn't find it. JJ, did you go back with your metal detector and still couldn't find it? I did, I couldn't find it. Yeah. So I lost evidence. It, it sucks that I did that, but I, you know, I don't know if it was actually from the actual crime scene, but I don't know. I don't 
even know if it was someone threatening me or someone trying to help me. I don't know. Yeah, that's bizarre. And it just wasn't there the day before on the curb? No, uh-uh. Because, see, the reason I know it wasn't there, 100% sure it wasn't there, I had Kylan's rocks lined up on the curb and I was clear-coating them so they would last better so that I'd have them forever. I was just clear-coating Kylan's rocks right on the curb. It wasn't there the day before. No way, I would have saw it 100% for sure. And then I mishandled it and now it's gone. So that was my boo-boo. Now I didn't mishandle the key. I didn't mishandle the key that came in. That came in in plastic, came in late in the afternoon. And the next morning I was sitting there with my lawyer going, what do I do? They haven't come for this key yet. And he said, bring it to them. And so I said, oh, will you sit here and watch my clue booth in case someone comes for a clue? And he said, yeah. And so I ran to the just three blocks, everything in Moab's just three blocks. So I ran to the sheriff's office and I gave him the, the key with the Jim Bobs on it. One key, what would be like a Jim Locker key uh, it had two bobs or, or tags on it that would have like a reader code on the back that would beep in whoever the member was to go into the climbing gym. They were both climbing gyms. Luckily for me, one of my angels, my angels were my first cousins and my sister, and I was like Charlie's angels, okay, and my angels uh, as soon as I sent them pictures of the key fobs, my first cousin in Tyler, Texas said, what the hell, Sean Paul, that gym's in Tyler. It's here. I'm here. And she went to the gym and uh, it was closed and it was foreclosed on and all the computers were in this stupid foreclosure jail and there was no way for us to find out who the member was on that key fob. So then we looked and looked and looked for the very vague second key fob, trying to match the logo up with a climbing gym. And I mean, I started in Texas because the first one was from Tyler. Then I moved to Florida because Brian Laundry was sometimes climbed and he was out of Florida. Then I searched Moab and we just kept growing and growing and, and, and we searched all around trying to find this gym and we couldn't find it. So we started to panic after a week and I started to think, shit, this stuff's time sensitive. We need this information right away. So we decided to go ahead and post on a rock climbing website, a short, quick, brief post. And someone responded and said, hey, I know that gym. And I was like, oh my God, are you serious? So I called the gym and the owner, I think his name was Sean. I think he had the same name as me. And I talked to Sean and, and I said, uh, what was I told him what was going to happen and that he told me the name of the person on the key fob that I was already texting it to law enforcement and that if he gave me that information that I promised that I would give him anonymity and try to erase any trail that led to him because I didn't want what happened to Woody's to now happen to this guy. What I did was I told him exactly what was going to happen and I told him that it's only me and 
the lead investigator at the sheriff's office that's going to instantly have this information. So I said, so do you think you would be willing to give it to me? And he said, well, it's an old computers and it's the old system, but let me see if it'll boot up. And he booted it up and I'll be damned. He was able to give me name, address, phone number, secondary phone number, emergency contact, everything. So I immediately went on my Facebook. Now you guys don't really have the luxury of Sean Paul's Facebook, but you know when you punch in a name and it searches the algorithms for the name, well guess what? When I do that, it pops up the guy in Moab. It doesn't pop up some random dude in New York, Texas or wherever. It pops up the one that I know and my friends know and we have all these people in common. So often if Jason and I get a lead, the first thing we'll do is put him in my Facebook. You know, I've been there for nine years and so the algorithm takes me to people associated with Moab. So the guy pops up on my Facebook. I watch a few videos of the dude and all of a sudden he's sitting on the front bumper of his car right next to his license plate number. And I'm like, I, I mean, I got him lock, stock and barrel. Everything I have on this guy, name, address, phone number, date of birth, even his license plate number and the type of car he's driving. So I call the sheriff's office and I says, uh, hey guys, you know those key fobs I turned in? And they said to me, yeah, we know that Jim's been in foreclosure for two years. And I said, you goofballs, you want to know the name of the guy on the key fob that you don't know? have his name, his address, his phone number, his date of birth, even his license plate number. And they were like, uh, yeah, we want that. And so I sent it to him, you know, but I mean, it was pretty interesting that my angels were able to best the authorities by a week. After searching state after state to try and match up the gym logo to which gym it belonged to in the country, then finally identifying the gym and the owner of the key fobs and turning all the information over to law enforcement, he is unable to get any updates on what the status is of that person or that information and whether or not that person is a suspect. Do law enforcement not have an obligation to give families information or updates? And why can't they trust that you, of all people, won't share the information since no one wants this case solved more than you? You have to answer that for me. I, I can't even sure. answer it. I mean, this, this answer is not just limited to this case. This is given the fact, you know, I've dealt with dozens and dozens of cases. It is traditional for law enforcement not to update family other than cliche statements like we're working on it uh, if they get a suspect I mean not a person of interest but when they actually get a suspect they'll say something maybe you know expect an arrest they're very non-specific because even when you go to these seminars like I went to a cold case no body homicide that 
uh, seminar that was offered by the FBI and the in and jointly with the International Homicide Association. Um, and one of the things that they said is, you don't update the family because you don't want to build false hope. And that's being true. A the cult- one FBI lady told me it'd be over a year. And I said, don't tell that to me. Don't tell that to the dad of the, the victim of, of the girls. No. And she said, you need to start hearing that and getting used to that. And I was like, oh, shit. Saying being, being not of the same cloth as other investigators in cold cases, meaning I'm not former law enforcement, I'm former defense. So I have a different viewpoint on updating family. In fact, my greatest source of information is family members. It's not you know, law enforcement, it's not the lab, it's not new techniques, it's not, you know, peer review by a cold case committee or anything like that. My source is always family members because they keep looking and they could sit on a cold, you know, cold case file, can sit on a shelf for years and years and years and the police wait for a call to come in as a tip. Family members are always being proactive social media posts, you know, justice for blah, 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 or whatever. So they'll get tips throughout all the time. Sometimes it's some snide comments. Sometimes it's a real tip. Sometimes it's some wacko doodle that's saying some theory. But ultimately, yeah, I believe in updating family. It's not false hope to give hope. But cops automatically think that it could be false hope. It's like, no, 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 just hope. All you really have to do is tell them that we're working on it in a sincere fashion. Be very realistic, like, hey, we're opening up the file for a week. I'm not making any promises. We're gonna look through the file, see if there's anything new that we can develop. I'm gonna share with my new partner. We're gonna see if we can get some fresh ideas. I know from a past report, they try to get a hold of a guy and then they lost contacts. They're going to try to find that person. Uh, we're going to see if there's DNA. Jason, but if I can't get in in a week, I'll get back, you know, we'll get back to you. That- I have a question for you, Jason. Sure. Okay. Um, explain to all of us, I mean, but I want, I want the answer. Explain to me how when I was um, turning in what I thought were suspects, how I thought they were all persons of interest, how they were real clues coming into me from real people on the streets. How come the sheriffs kept telling me that they didn't have any suspects yet? So can you explain to all of us what the hell are they talking about when they say they don't have any suspects while I'm actively turning in 10, 12, 15, 17, 18, 20 names? Because right. that's the part that I think is confusing for the general public as well, is they want answers on the suspects that they've turned in. So I think everyone wants to hear what the hell are they talking about? Can you clarify that? Sure, sure. Recently, I posted uh, an image on Facebook covering that very topic, to be honest. Uh, There is a linkage of evidence triangle. 
Okay, on one corner you got suspect, the other corner you have the victim, the other corner you have the crime scene. That is what a suspect is if you can link him to the crime scene and or to the victim. Just simply a person that could be a suspect is more within the definition of a person of interest. It's a somebody to to look at, not even necessarily to investigate yet, because in order for it to fit the mold of an, someone to investigate, there has to be reasonable suspicion they committed a crime. So it's not even reasonable to suspect them, just simply that they're crazy people on the mountain. If So in if, other words, if I had said, oh, Joe Blow uh, up here, cut up all his hair, bragged to friends in the bar drunk, and he is flashing a nine millimeter now that would be a person of interest a suspect but for me just to have someone come down off the mountain and say hey uh my grandpa's crazy and not only do i think he killed your girls but i think he's gonna kill me okay so to me that was like holy crap that's a suspect but not to law enforcement it wasn't Right, it would be more defined as could be a suspect. You've got the could be on there. So once you can clarify that there's something more concrete that you can articulate, that you can convince to a judge, now all of a sudden it rises to a level of probable cause that you can get a warrant to arrest the guy or to get issued a search warrant. So like on the warrants, for instance, that have been issued here, we know that it describes the crime scene because they're looking for the suspect. So there's a lot of detail there about the victims. There's details about the crime scene. It's because they're trying to find the other angle of that triangle to see who that suspect would be. So all the emphasis was concerning the crime scene and the victim because they're looking for the suspect. And that's where we're at. But you got all these web sleuthers. They're out there looking for any name and there's no real connection to either the crime scene or to the victim, but ideally right. it would connect to both. Okay, so that's kind of how I was looking at that triangle was only the dark green part in the middle was the right. actual real solid facts and clues. All the rest were evidence, speculation, what how the victims were how the crime scene was but only that part in the little middle is like the bullseye of where we got the guy that's right because right there in the middle you link everything the crime scene the victim the suspects they're all converging like had this crime actually occurred in front of the co-op now all of a sudden you got solid linkage to the crime scene the victim and even Brian Laundry, because he's across the street. Right. It's real easy to shoot a, a handgun across the street. Uh, given the fact it's out in the wilderness, we're looking for somebody that links to the wilderness, that also links to uh, the victims specifically. And one of the th things that we got is plenty of it concerning the whole mountain. You know, like this guy was here on this range, or this guy was here on this hill, or this guy was at Warner Lake or whatever. But that's not really close enough to the crime scene to be specific that he was within 
eye view of the tent or within arm's reach of the victims or could have submerged them in the little creek. Those are the things that they got to tie to. So when they take nail clippings and look for DNA on their nails or they look for DNA on underwear or something like that, they're trying to tie it specifically to somebody that was at the crime scene that had hands on the victims or the victims had hands on them. Listening to Sean Paul and Jason talk about the case was fascinating. And at times, it almost felt as if we were a fly on the wall, listening in on their conversation, watching their minds work through it. A thought that has run through my mind many, many times as we've covered this case is that Sean Paul is the epitome of goodness and is the father that I wish everyone could have. His strength, fortitude, and gratitude throughout this entire nightmare really goes to show his character and his desire to keep going and do what's best for his remaining children. And we could see and hear the love in all the beautiful stories and keepsakes he shared with us. It was heartbreaking to witness his sadness and trauma and how much he misses his children, but also heartwarming to hear the sweet, loving memories he shared. 